And then the third one was home health, which is not to be confused with home Home care. care. We're going to spend so much time on that later. But yeah, this, by the way, Medicare home health is like a hidden gem. Welcome to the Mastering Medicare podcast, where we demystify healthcare and Medicare for senior serving professionals and providers with your co-hosts, Dr. Alex Moseni and Dr. Amy Schiffman. Visit MasteringMedicare.net for show notes, additional episodes, and valuable resources. Okay, welcome, folks. This is your co-host, Alex Moseni, and my wonderful co-host, Amy Schiffman. What's up, podcast listeners? Amy, we are two ER doctors. We don't like BS. So let's just get to the meat of the matter. What is Part A? So Part A is medicine that is covered by the government that takes care of the acute care spectrum. That is hospital, post-acute rehab, home health, and hospice. That is what Part A covers. It is going to be coming to you when you get older. When you turn 65, you will get this. So Part A is inpatient hospital, rehab, home health, and hospice. Got it. Got it. How does one qualify for Part A? So to get Part A Medicare is basically the same criteria to get Medicare in general. You have to be 65 or older, and you or your spouse have to have paid into the Social Security system for at least 10 years, also called 40 quarters. And then you can get Part A Medicare. You qualify when you turn 65. So basically, about three months before you turn 65, you're going to start getting notifications. Automatically. Automatically. And if you sign up in the three months before you turn 65, you can actually start receiving Medicare in the month that you turn 65. If you wait until after you turn 65, which is, you know, some people do, then you start getting it after that. But you only have three months after you turn 65. If you don't opt into Part A or the Medicare system at that point, it's a whole other different ball of wax. Really? Yes, it, it is. It if you don't get it in the initial enrollment period, it's not as easy to sign up. Got it. So I, I've heard there are other ways to qualify other than age. What else? So in order to qualify for Medicare, you can qualify, like I said, if you're 65 and you and your spouse is paid in for 10 years. If you have ALS, also known as Lou Gehrig's disease, you can receive Medicare. At any age. At any age. If you have end-stage renal disease and are on dialysis, you can receive Medicare at any age. And then if you are under the age of 65 and you were previously employed and are now permanently disabled... You can start receiving Medicare 25 months after being accepted into what is known as the SSDI program, which is a disability insurance program through the government, and you will get Medicare benefits at that time. Now, you have to also pay uh, just like anybody else who would be paying for like a secondary insurance and all these types of things that we talked about in the last episode, but um, you have to wait 25 months after your initial total disability has been sort of declared. Got it. So there's four ways, four main ways to qualify for Medicare. One is by age, 65 and older. Second is by ALS or Lou Gehrig's disease. Third is with end-stage renal disease on dialysis. And fourth is through disability. Correct. And it's really important to realize that 80% of the patients who receive Medicare actually are there because they are what are called aged. You know, they've over the age of 65. Right. So the first category that we talked about is the majority. 
Got of it. the patients who are receiving Medicare. There's a couple of side notes also. If you, for some reason, do not qualify to receive Medicare because of you didn't pay into the Social Security system or you just have other factors that make you sort of eligible, but you've, you're missing a couple of components, you can actually buy into it as if it's a private insurance. Mm, it, I didn't know that. That's sort of interesting. And that also there's a whole slew of folks who have veterans insurance because they are veterans. They get VA benefits. Sure. That group of people um, can actually have these two different insurance plans and can utilize both of them simultaneously. It is not an either or. So people who have Medicare and a secondary can also be receiving uh, access through the VA health system simultaneously. And it is not it's not considered to be like a problem at all. They can basically concurrently use those two. Additionally, there is a term that we're going to use a lot in our podcast. And you probably are going to hear it. It's called being dual eligible. It means that you have both Medicare and Medicaid, which means that you are eligible to receive Medicare benefits and you are low income. So if you have Medicare and Medicaid, that is called dual eligible. And that is a a term that you're going to hear a lot, particularly if you're somebody who's in the population health space. Got it. Okay. So that caps off our, our brief introduction to how one qualifies for Medicare. Correct. I think it's really interesting even though we're going to be deep diving into part A, I think it's really interesting to understand the history of Medicare at this point. Medicare actually was founded in 1964 under the Johnson administration as a stopgap solution for older Americans who had no hospital insurance. At the time that it was envisioned, which was actually 20 years prior to the 1960s, there was this concept of Medicare because families were financially decimated by hospital bills. You know, somebody would get sick and then that would just sort of like be the end of the family's savings and everything. So at the time in the 1950s and 60s, the AMA wasn't actually always in favor of Medicare. But in 1964, it finally passed. And at that time, 40 percent of all older Americans had no form of health insurance whatsoever. And for those Americans, that is why Medicare came about for those 40 percent. Interesting. Yeah. So now we don't even worry about healthcare when we get older. It's like a kind of a no-brainer to some degree. Awesome. Okay, thank you for that history lesson. We're going to do a brief review of what we talked about in our last podcast. And brief, then, yep. Brief, and then we're going to go straight into Part A Medicare. Perfect, fantastic. Right. I'm going to leave the, the brief review to you. Okay. Go, Alex, Great. do it. So original Medicare is Parts A, B, and D. Part A covers four main things, which are inpatient hospital, rehab, home health, and hospice. Part B is professional services, plus some other stuff that we're going to review. But professional services means doctor, NP, and PA bills, inpatient or outpatient. And Part D is medications, outpatient medications. And then Part C, which is a separate thing, also called Medicare Advantage, is a combination of Part A, B, and D administered by private companies. Excellent. So uh, let's dive right into Part A, which is the acute care spectrum, which is comprised of four sub-elements, which are inpatient hospitalization, post-acute care rehab, Medicare home health, and hospice. Perfect. Amy, before, before we dive into the other aspects Let's pause for a moment on each of these just to define what they are. Absolutely. So when we're talking about inpatient hospital, that usually means spending the night in the hospital, but 
not in the ER or an observation. It, Correct. Right? It's a status in the hospital. I mean, it really is not even like necessarily a location because t- sometimes people can be inpatient status no matter what bed they're sleeping in. It's a right. status in the hospital. It's a qualifying status. Patients now have to meet certain criteria in order to be considered inpatient. Okay. So that's so, inpatient hospital. Yes. And then you said rehab. There's a few synonyms for that. Can you rehab? Re- sure. Yeah. So some people call it a sniff. What does sniff stand for? Skilled nursing facility. Okay. It is different than like a long-term care facility. I mean, oftentimes these are places that are the exact same building, but there's patients in it that are getting short-term post-acute rehab, and there's people who live there. Right. So we're actually referring specifically to people who are leaving an inpatient hospitalization and going to continue their care, their curative care, in a location known as rehab. Rehab, sniffs. Uh, some people even call it a nursing home. Correct. And nursing home is just basically a term for the building. And right, within that nursing home, they may have lots of different ways of getting care. But the specific kind of care that Medicare Part A is taking care of is the rehabilitation side of that. Right. So they're trying to kind of tune you up after a hospital admission. This is different from being in a nursing home or rehab just because you're old and you can't take care of yourself. Correct. Got it. And then the third one was home health, which is not to be confused with Home Home care. care. We're going to spend so much time on that later. But yeah, this, by the way, Medicare home health is like a hidden gem. It is an unbelievable service that is provided by companies, private companies that contract with Medicare that provide skilled services in the home. This is not what I call buttons and baths. This is not like somebody to come and sort of, you know, help you to the bathroom, make sure you don't fall, provide light housekeeping and and cooking. This is really skilled services, usually by an RN, a physical therapist, an occupational therapist. There's also access to social work. We're going to get more into it, but it is a specific set of things that is provided by Medicare Home Health. And then very briefly, the last one, hospice, what is it? So hospice is not always a place. It is also a status within Medicare. It is basically a provision of services for end-of-life care. Right. For those people who are expected to have fewer than six months of life left. Six months or less to live. Correct. So Part A covers those four components, inpatient hospital, rehab or post-acute rehab, home health, and hospice. Yep. Okay. Now, this must be really expensive. What does this cost? So Part A, as we alluded to in our last episode, actually has no monthly premium, meaning that on a month-to-month basis, you are not paying for this to have access to this. You're not prepaying a premium, but once you do use some of the services, sometimes you do have a cost-sharing component. Correct. So let's just talk about the very first one, which is an inpatient hospitalization. If you end up in the hospital at least one time during any year, you have to pay approximately a $1,400 copay, essentially. It is basically a a patient responsibility for a single hospitalization. But if you then get hospitalized again in that same year, you don't have to pay that $1,400 again. It's a one-time fee for hospitalization for the whole year. So an annual deductible. It's basically an annual deductible of sorts, but it's like an all-you-can-eat deductible, which means that you can get hospitalized multiple times and only pay that $1,400 one time. However, Medicare does not believe in lengthy stays in the hospital. So for the first 60 days of any hospitalization, 
If you paid that $1,400 already, there is no coinsurance in the hospital. So let me make sure I understand. Yeah, absolutely. So the first 60 days of hospitalization per year, your only the patient's only responsibility is the $1,400. Correct. Okay. Then once you exceed that 60 days and you move on to days 61 through 90, you actually owe about $350 per day. For your hospitalization. For your hospitalization. Okay. Exactly. Once you exceed that 90 days and you enter into 91 and beyond days, you have to pay $700 for each what is called lifetime reserve day. Now, if you exceed 60 lifetime reserve days where you've been paying about $700 a day, it's all costs of that hospitalization are on the patient. Okay, so let let me try to restate what you just said and tell me if I got it right. So the first 60 days of each year, you're responsible for the $1,400 deductible. Yep. Days 61 through 90, you're paying $352 a day. Yep. Beyond day 90, so not day 91 and on, it's $700 a day, but for a maximum of 60 days in your entire lifetime. Correct. And after those 60 days are used up, then you are responsible for 100%. Correct. Even if it's a new year. Yep. Got it. And so it goes zero, 350, 700 for just 60 days, and then it's all you. Exactly. So it's, I think my guess, and this is just based on my own observation from when I was a resident, maybe you would agree, Alex, is that people used to have really lengthy hospital stays. Right. Like really long. And I think this is sort of like a solution to... To, to help both patients and family to kind of figure out discharge plans and disposition plans so that people don't end up like moving into the hospital, right. essentially. Okay, so that's inpatient hospital. There were three other components. So we got it. We want to now talk to the idea of post-acute care rehab. Also called SNF. Also or, called SNF or, or like nursing home care after a hospitalization. So Medicare will pay for the first 100 days of a rehab stay. The first 20 days of that rehab stay are 100% paid for. By Medicare. By Medicare. Okay. After the first 20 days, on that 21st day, you go into a cost-sharing mode. There are some sorts of Medigap insurance, which you may have bought with your Part B insurance, that actually will pay for that. But for some people, they don't have that. So they are actually left holding the bag for that cost sharing. So when a care manager in that nursing home walks into your room and says, okay, yeah, Medicare has paid for your first 20 days and tomorrow begins our cost splitting day. Yeah. Um, a lot of patients, no matter sort of what state they're in, cannot afford it's, you know, maybe 150, 200 bucks, can't afford that, will often sort of leave. Got so it. the average length of stay in a rehab facility is about 21 days. Got it. Got it. So the first, just to recap that again. So yeah. For rehab, the first 20 days are completely covered by Medicare. Uh, Days 21 through 100, cost sharing and their supplemental insurance or Medigap insurance may help with that. Exactly. The other thing that's sort of interesting is that if you are receiving inpatient mental health services in a psychiatric hospital, Medicare limits its payments for that service to 190 days in a lifetime. That's on the inpatient Inpatient hospitalization side for inpatient mental health. Okay. We talked about inpatient hospital. We talked about rehab. What about home health? 
Okay, home health. Boy, this is like kind of something I love to talk about. So home health, like I said, is this like secret weapon to help keep people, you know, doing okay in their home. So a home health agency is, like I said before, a company that contracts with Medicare to provide specific services in the home. So when you come home from either a hospitalization or rehab and you end up in the home and you still have, let's say, wound care or need help making sure that the medications you've been started on are working or you need a some rehab, continued you know, physical therapy or occupational therapy and in some cases psychiatric needs or even uh, speech therapy, those resources are available to you through a Part A contracting home health agency. So... What happens is a physician has to do a face-to-face visit with that patient 90 days before home health is going to start. And that's usually really easy to do, especially if they've been in a hospital or in a nursing home. And then they go home and they basically for free get a slew of services as determined by that ordering physician. So who's typically the ordering physician? So when a patient is coming out of a nursing home or rehab, it is usually a combination of two different types of physicians that have to do this. So there's often somebody that's doing the face-to-face, and there's another one, which is usually the primary care doctor, that is the quote-unquote ordering physician. So when the patient is coming out of the hospital, the hospital's discharge planners will say, hey, doctor, this and that who's in the hospital, can you do the face-to-face? I will contact the primary care doctor who will then, based on what has happened in the hospital, get the orders done and what is called sign the 485. The 485 is basically Medicare's version of the order form. I will sign the 485 based on the problems that have happened in the hospital. This is often really hard, actually, for some of these home health agencies and discharge planners, which is honestly one of the ways I started my house calls practice. But if you want to be receiving home health services, you need for someone to see you do a an examination that says, yes, it makes sense for this person to receive services in the home. And then you need another physician to say, yes, I will sign the orders for the things that the patient needs in their home. Can you talk a little bit about what are the different elements of home health? Okay. So we've got skilled nursing. What does that mean? Skilled nursing is, it, it's complicated because it means about 25 different things, right? Like you can get skilled nursing for really obvious things like wound care and what's called hypertension management. You know, if you have a, a medication that you were on this dose, now you're on that dose, they will come and check your, your blood pressure. And these visits are not like two, three, four hours long. You know, they come two or three times a week, going directly to check those different things yeah. and then interface back with the ordering physician, make sure that the orders that uh, and the plan of care is sort of following along. If there's something concerning, they will get in touch with the doctor. And sometimes you even have to send the patient to the hospital. But all in all, it's a way of having somebody who is a, not an LPN, although in some home health agencies, you can use an LPN, but it's not a CNA. It's not a home health aide. It's an RN who has skilled, skilled nursing who will go in and be able to make assessments about the patient to make sure that they stay healthy at home. Got it. So home health includes skilled nursing, and you you also mentioned physical therapy and occupational therapy. Correct. But what are the main types of things those guys do? So Part A also pays for PT and OT. So we're going to talk about this later in the Part B world, that there is a Part B PT, OT, but this is Part A PT, OT, and this is also in a post-acute care setting 
or in a setting where there is a, and by post-acute you mean they like, were just uh, they were just discharged from the hospital correct so they were either just discharged from the hospital just discharged from a nursing home but you can also start pt part a pt and ot also from the community but if you think about it it's it's a it's basically a short-term burst of physical therapy and or occupational therapy in order to get patients moving in a way that they weren't moving before. And there is no copay for this. This differently than the inpatient hospitalization where there is cost sharing and differently from the inpatient rehab where there is cost sharing after day 20, home health has no cost sharing. It is completely free. As long as you qualify. As long as you qualify. You have to be what is called homebound, which is a whole thing. We could have a whole discussion about what it means to be homebound, but just I'll summarize that it means it must, it's a taxing effort to leave the home. It doesn't mean you can't leave the home. It just means it's a taxing effort to leave the home. Who can make that determination that it's a taxing effort and how do they do that? So it is really a very subjective thing. I mean, there's not like a checklist that makes it very objective. I mean, obviously, if you drive independently and don't need anybody to be with you, you do not meet that criteria. But if you use a walker or a cane, have any cognitive disabilities, vision, auditory, there's a lot of things that make people sort of qualify under the homebound. I mean, people can still go out, but it means that you're going out with assistance. Mm -hmm. You can go out to doctor's appointments. But it is with assistance. It just needs to be a taxing effort. And there's like a whole slew of references within the Medicare literature. And we'll be sure to make make those accessible if anybody is really curious what exactly Part A Medicare home health requires in order to, to provide that service. So somebody needs to certify that you are homebound. Correct. And how often do they need to certify that? So the homeboundedness is actually certified at the beginning of a certification period, which in 2019 is a 60-day certification period. And there's a lot of changes happening in 2020, and we'll address those in another podcast, where it's going to kind of shorten down to 30 days for certain elements of the certification. But every single time that somebody goes in to see that patient, almost in some ways, they don't, they're not necessarily officially certifying, but if suddenly somebody is you know, definitely homebound, and then you start seeing them for a while, and they become more, you know, more independent and able to leave the home, you you actually can't provide services under the Medicare Part A benefit for home health. Got it. So for 2019, the recertification is every 60 days, every 60 days. Correct. And is it the is it typically the physician who's recertifying? Or is it on the PTOT side themselves? So each individual skilled pr- practitioner who's in that home is actually not certifying on the 60 days. They're certifying as to whether or not that patient still needs the help that has been prescribed on the care plan. Mm. So if you have a skilled nurse who's in there for wound care, even though it's been a 60-day certification period, if that wound gets fixed before the 60 days is up, she can leave or he can leave, and, and that, that sort of service line can end. Physical therapy, same. If a patient what is called plateaus before that 60-day certification period is up, again, services don't always continue for the full 60 days, even though the original certification is for 60 days. So, you know, a lot of times these the services that are sort of prescribed in a part of the care plan can get fixed before the 60 days. But there are certain people for whom that 60 days turns into another 60 days, can turn into another 60 days. And those are called recertifications. And there's a specific billing code for both certifying and recertifying a a patient. 
Okay, you mentioned skilled nursing, PTOT, but you also mentioned speech and home health aid. What do those folks do? So a so speech um, is a wonderful service. They go in, they can evaluate swallowing, they do cognitive testing on patients. It is under the PTOT speech, so it's under the therapies department, but okay. it's under the Part A umbrella at this point. And they go into the home and can, you know, evaluate people for what I just said, which is basically swallowing and talking and and they do a lot of cognitive testing now as part of okay. what they do. What about the home health aides? Home health aides. So great. So Alex, this opens up a giant can of worms, but I'm going to just open it just a little teeny tiny bit. All right. So if a provider believes that a patient needs assistance with a home health aid, under the Part A benefit, they will be getting approximately 45 minutes twice a week. This is not four hours a day. This is not 12 hours a day. This is not overnight care. This is literally 45 minutes twice a week and only while they are actively receiving care under that certification. So once PT, OT, and skilled nursing pull out, so does the home health aid. It is only there while there are other services there. Okay, wait. So a few questions. Well, first of all, what do home health aides do? Oh, fantastic. They'll assist with bathing, help change the sheets, do things that are really home health aid services, which is they're not there to do wound care. They're not there to set up medications. They're not there to assist with walking, you know, and doing physical therapy. They are really just there for what are called custodial needs for that patient. Okay. And I didn't, so the other point you made, I, I did not know. So home health aids, you can't just get home health aid. It, correct. It is not correct. It is not an independent service that can be ordered through the home health. Got it. You correct. have to also be receiving and qualifying for skilled nursing, PT or OT P- or speech. Skilled nursing or PT and OT, correct. Got it. Got it. Okay. So to recap, part A thus far, it has no premium. There is inpatient hospital, which has different kind of stages of there's both deductible and then cost sharing. And then there's rehab which there's a patient component after day on on and after day 21 home health uh, has skilled nursing PTOT speech and home health aids with no cost to the patient as okay. long as they they qualify and then there's the last component which is hospice yeah before we run to hospice i yeah. want to add two actually important things in about medicare skilled nursing for the wound care okay if you are receiving wound care under the skilled nursing Medicare Part A, home health, you will get your wound care supplies paid for under the Medicare Part A benefit. Under Part A. Under the Part A benefit. If you are not receiving wound care services under the Part A and you just need to go out and buy some wound care supplies, that's not paid for by Medicare. Right. So, But if you are receiving Part A, home health, with skilled nursing for wound care, you're wound care supplies will be paid for. Okay. And I, I guess the context here, and we're going to get to it in another episode, is that Part B covers DME. Which but, is not supplies. But not supplies. Not supplies. Yeah. So Correct. there are different instances where Medicare will and will not cover supplies, basically. Correct. Yep. Got it. Correct. The other thing that's really important to realize is that Medicare Part A Home health can allow for somebody to be in to, let's say, change a suprapubic catheter, change a Foley catheter to do PT-INR testing for people who are on Coumadin. 
but it that cannot be the only reason that they are in ad infinitum. There has to be sort of a something changing. Medicare likes it when things change so that if, you know, suddenly there's like you have to do something more or do something less, they they're not just there to to just check PTINRs or to just do Foley catheter changes. Got it. Okay. Anything else on the home health? I think we have basically covered it. A couple, yeah, actually, there's a couple more things I want to throw in there. Under the Part A benefit, you know, Medicare Part A home health agencies are really important partners in the care for, for patients. They're important partners for the patient. They're important partners for the MD nurse practitioner or PA who is sort of sort of the the captain of that ship because they're the ones who are writing and signing the orders for those patients. And it's important to realize that because they are such important partners, there is a lot of communication that goes back and forth. And Medicare does pay for that from the provider side. If you do a lot of communication with the home health nurse, Medicare will actually allow you under some billing codes to say, hey, listen, I'd like to get paid for all of that communication. So that's part of a care management benefit that has really come about in the in the last few years. You're talking about the CCM codes? Well, actually, it's they're they're actually over and above the CCM codes. It's called care plan oversight. It's called CPO. Mm. There are codes for that. So for any providers that are listening that are interested in and how uh, they could get a different revenue stream from doing a good job by communicating with home health nurses, that is one way of doing it. But that would be, I presume, paid under Part B, right? Yeah, the provider would get paid under Part B, right. correct, for interfacing with Part A. Got it. It's like a... It's like a, a bridge. It's a bridge, exactly. Interesting. Yeah. Okay. Okay, um, we need to do hospice. Let's talk about hospice. Okay, hospice, hospice, hospice. Oh, my gosh. Hospice, it's like the, it's like the, the, it's like a diamond, you know, it's like the greatest thing that Medicare does. It's a way of providing team-based quality. Wraparound. Wraparound care for patients who are at end of life. Right. It is the only service that emphasizes team-based care within the organization. So hospice, again, is organizations that contract with Medicare to provide hospice services. There are for-profit and not-for-profit hospices. They all have to provide basically the same level of care, which assumes that the patient they are taking care of has been uh, certified to have six months or less to live. And a doctor just has to say, I would not be surprised if this patient died within the next six months. And uh, that's what they, they're actually using that phrase. I yeah, would not that be is, surprised. I would not be, that is one phrase that is permitted. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I would not be surprised if this patient died within the next six months. Got it. And over the period of time that the patient is being cared for under hospice, which also comes in certification periods, it's two 90 day periods, a 90 day, a 90 day, and then it goes into 60 day certification periods. If you don't die in those first six months, You don't get kicked out necessarily if you are demonstrating cognitive, functional, or nutritional decline. So if you are demonstrating cognitive, functional, or nutritional decline, you can stay in hospice for a a long time. I mean, Medicare might look at it and say, why is this patient in hospice for two years? But if at every single sort of end of certification period, somebody goes in and certifies it, I wouldn't be surprised if this patient died in the next six months. 
you, you see patients like that. Right. It, it's just part of it. And one of the things that you get as part of hospice, which is different than home health, because they're really similar in some of the things that they provide. Yes, they both provide skilled nursing. Under the Medicare hospice benefit, you get the following services. You get skilled nursing. You get case management with a social worker. You get access to a religious person or somebody who can deal with the existential issues as they revolve around death and dying. And you get a medical director who is often a partner in care if you are another MD, NP, or PA, who can be another sort of reference point and somebody that you can bounce ideas off of for providing the best end-of-life care. You also get your medications as they pertain to the terminal diagnosis, which is the reason that you're in hospice. Those medications are paid for for free. You get complete access to as much durable medical equipment as you need without any qualifying criteria, which we'll get to when we talk about Part B, which is you get a bed without qualifying. You get a you know bedside commode without qualifying. You get a bedside table without qualifying. You can get a lot of oxygen without qualifying. So it just sort of like brings things in much more easily into that patient's sphere of care. And it's done rather rapidly. If a hospice receives an order, they must make contact with that patient within 24 hours. Interesting. What helps me understand hospice, and, and, and you helped me understand this, was that Medicare is essentially paying the hospice agency a per diem to take care of almost everything. Correct. Right? And basically saying, we're going to give you typically, what, like $150 a day, something in that range. Yep. And you, the hospice agency, now need to pretty much take care of everything to do with this patient, including medications and... DME. Much, I mean, know, every, every expense, yeah. But 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 now you got to kind of keep them out of the rest of the system. Yep. Right? Uh, because if that you, the hospice agency, are now on the hook for the expenses of that patient. So I, we're going to pay you this amount of money every day. You're responsible for all the expenses. So if that patient ends up, something happens and ends up back in the ER, this is where it gets really tricky, right? Walk us through that situation. So... If you are receiving only 150 bucks a day to pay for somebody, as Alex said, you know, it's it's kind of crazy. You have to really limit the amount of things that you bring in. I mean, you're not going to be getting lots of x-rays and lab tests and all those types of things because that's really going to go on your cash register as a hospice. Yep. You don't want to take away all care because obviously you care, but you have to make good decisions. You don't want to order expensive medications. You want to make sure that you're handling that dollar amount right. So if you end up in the emergency department, if a patient ends up in the emergency department, and it is- let's pause for a second, yeah. that does happen. I mean, for example, I've had I've had hospice patients who fall and break their hip, right? So this is a great this is great because so all right, so if a patient does fall and okay, so let's rewind. It is the responsibility of a hospice agency to basically take the money that is given to them by Medicare Part A. And say, I am going to pay for all of the things that have to do with this patient's end-of-life care. That includes medications, durable medical equipment, the cost of the nurses who go in and out, the cost of a religious person who goes in and out, the cost of the medical director, the cost of all these different things. So if costs come up that are unexpected outside of what is considered to be the typical course of hospice care, it can really 
be a money loser for a hospice, whether they're for profit or not for profit. It can be very costly. This is why a lot of hospices don't allow dialysis when the patient is in hospice, because they would be responsible for that. Or getting a blood transfusion or any of these different things, these are extremely high costs that Medicare Part A benefit for hospice doesn't necessarily pay for. So if a hospice patient ends up in the emergency department for any assorted number of reasons, a maybe a home health aide or a family member got really scared and called 911, even though the patient may be in the natural course of having an illness or the patient falls and breaks their hip. Whatever the reason may be, there is an enormous scramble on the part of the hospice to get to the emergency department to have the patient withdraw from hospice, at least for that period of care. Otherwise, they'd be on the hook for Correct. the expense. Correct. Otherwise, that expense, that emergency department visit is on the hospice. Uh, so let's clarify that, and that point. And that could be four or $5,000 right. just for walking through the door. Once, So the point you're making, let's, just, let's make sure we don't miss the headline here, is that if you are in hospice status, you can't simultaneously be also billing for these other Part A services. Or, or meaning, no, no, I'm not saying it right. If you are a hospice patient, your expenses are going to be billed to the hospice agency. As long as they are related to the terminal diagnosis. That is absolutely correct. So let's just, as an example, let's just say um, you are in hospice for cancer. Okay. You, can't, you cannot be receiving, uh, unless hospice chooses to pay for it, which they usually don't, yeah. uh, chemo and trips to the oncologist. Those, those things end. Right. So if, got it. But for, there are weird situations where uh, people have gotten cataract surgery paid for under Part B, even though they're receiving hospice because cataract surgery has nothing to do with their hospice diagnosis. I mean, that's a terrible oh, example okay. because who's going to go get cataract surgery if you're dying sure. necessarily, but, you know, people make lots of choices. So it's there and there's, you know, ways for doctors to appropriately code for that. Right. And then there's ways of sort of saying, hey, listen, is that a comfort care thing or is that uh, a totally separate problem? As right. an example, some hospices will pay for palliative radiation therapy. Hmm. I mean, so this is a really interesting point that I didn't fully appreciate when I was a line doctor. Hospices are taking risk. Absolutely. They are a risk-bearing entity. And I remember the hospice nurses like, rushing into the ER or or saying, listen, it, it, this is a list of our patients. If they ever walk in, call me immediately. And I never really understood what their what the urgency was uh, and why there was so much pressure on their part to know when one of their patients yes. comes in. But they're carrying the financial risk of that patient if, if somehow somebody freaks out and, and sends them to the ER. Correct. Fascinating. Yeah. And just so that everybody understands, it is not always a place that inpatient hospice, as we talk about it, you know, these places that are called hospice, Dove hospice, this yeah. hospice, that hospice, places are really for patients who are either completely at the end and have uncontrolled symptoms or people who are in the middle of their hospice and have uncontrolled symptoms. It's not just where you're like, oh, I don't want mom to die at home. Let's put her in a hospice place. It's really where uh, symptom management takes place. You know, that's another fascinating point. So Again, as a line doctor, ER doctor, I I had no idea that these were risk-bearing entities, number one. And number two, I always thought hospice was just a place. And as did I. Yeah. I want to let you know how wide open my eyes became when I started doing house calls because I realized I knew nothing about how the outside 
outpatient world worked. And frankly, I'm not even sure that a lot of um, outpatient doctors even totally understand it. But it's really important to understand that most hospice care in this country happens in the home. Got it. So to kind of recap hospice, they're taking on the risk of most of your medical expenses and they get a per diem to 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 take care of you. You got to qualify by having a medical provider saying that they would be they wouldn't be surprised if you were to pass away within six months and they have to recertify first 90 days, then 90 days, then it switches to 60 day recertification periods. And that's fascinating. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Anything else on that? I think, no. I mean, I think we really um, did hit the part A pretty well, but I do want to just go back to a couple of things. I think we touched upon that earlier, but I think it's really important to understand what it means to be an inpatient. And I just want to just yeah. go back to that again. Okay, great. That when you hit the emergency department and you are just come off an ambulance and into the emergency department, you are not admitted to the hospital. You are admitted to an emergency department, which is part B. Yeah. And so that word admission is uh, fraught, fraught uh, with confusion. Yeah, because it seems like lay people use it very differently from how physicians and other healthcare professionals use it. So when physicians and healthcare professionals use the word admit, uh, for the most part, it means going from outpatient status to inpatient status, that we are admitting you from the ER uh, usually into an inpatient status, Correct. right? Um, now, s- lay people sometimes think that any physical presence in the hospital or ER means admission, and that's that's, that's not n- true. That's not true, and that's Correct. not how it's used in the medical right. Lingo. And that's not who's going to pay for it either, right? So when you are physically on the hospital premises, you could be in either outpatient status, which is typically ER or observation. Or you could be an inpatient status. And the transition from outpatient to inpatient is called the admission. Yep. Yep. Awesome. Awesome. Okay, so to recap, the four parts of Part A are inpatient hospital, inpatient rehab, also called SNF, home health, which is not to be confused with home care, which we'll get to later, and hospice. And there is no premium for Part A, but there are there there are different types of deductibles and cost sharing on the inpatient hospital and the rehab side. There is no cost sharing with home health and hospice as long as you get certified and recertify in the appropriate periods. To certify for home health, it needs to be a taxing effort to get out of the house. And to certify for hospice, the physician needs to be not surprised if you were to pass away within six months. And hospice is a risk-bearing entity and it's a status, not a place. Fantastic. Thank you, Amy, for teaching us so much. This was really helpful. I love talking about this stuff. So it's great. All right. So I'm so excited for our next podcast. So coming up soon, part B. Awesome. Thank you. All right. Thank you. You have been listening to the Mastering Medicare podcast. Visit masteringmedicare.net for show notes, additional episodes, and valuable resources. 